My topic this afternoon is dealing with doubt. And my text, I believe, help my unbelief. Mark chapter 9 and verse 24. We're continuing our preaching series, Seeing to Follow, and reading in Mark chapters 8, 9, and 10. And one of the great obstacles to seeing Jesus truly and fully and being able, when we have done so, to follow him is doubt. In our gospel reading, the anguished father, whose son's condition appears to be fatal, who has asked for help from the disciples while Jesus was away, only to have them fail, has just been told all things are possible for one who believes. Does his son's healing depend on him? Will his lack of faith doom his own son? With desperate honesty and deep ambivalence, he cries out with tears, some manuscripts add, but it's hardly necessary. He cries out, I believe, help my unbelief. How may we deal with doubt? How may we resolve this obstacle to seeing Jesus clearly and following him nearly? Well, doubt, like love, is a many-splendored thing. There are varieties of doubt and different causes for doubt. To make clear what we are going to deal with this afternoon, permit me some definitions to narrow our subject a little. Let's posit four kinds of doubt. The first is spiritual conviction. Someone who says, I don't want the gospel to be true, but I fear that it is. You may think this an unlikely situation, but many who have come to faith, beginning with Saul of Tarsus, for whom it was hard to kick against the goads, have experienced a period of time in which they are drawn to Jesus, drawn by his character, his message, the warming in their hearts when they consider him, the failure of other options, their own increasingly desperate need for forgiveness, for guidance, for purpose in life. Yet at the same time, they are repelled by what commitment to Jesus might mean or by the need to associate with other Christians whom they do not find particularly attractive, or by the services of the church. I don't want the gospel to be true, but I fear that it is, is the cry of those drawn to Jesus, but fighting like a fish on a hook. Happily, spiritual conviction as a kind of doubt is transitional, and results after a struggle, long or short, as doubt yields to faith, in the birth of an adopted child of God. Some of you have known this doubt, and some of you may be in this struggle right now. And the best advice we can give you is simply surrender. Surrender unconditionally you'll find it's the best thing you ever did. For the one who is convicting you of the inconvenient truth of the gospel is the Holy Spirit, God himself. 
Another sort of doubt says the gospel can't possibly be true, and so it isn't. We call this skepticism. This doubt resides in the intellect and a keen mind receptive only to the observed regularities of nature and experience and reluctant to trust anything it can't fully analyze finds much to trouble it about the Christian faith. Things like miracles, proofs for the existence of God, the conflict between free will and divine sovereignty, the problem of evil, the authority and reliability of the scriptures are just a few of the hardy perennials in the garden of the skeptic. The skeptic hearing our gospel reading for today says the symptoms of this boy sound like grand mal epilepsy, thought by pre-moderns to be caused by evil spirits. The child's relief is coincidental and probably temporary. Now, skepticism is important to the life of the healthy mind. But over the centuries, Christians have developed an apologetic, that is, a defense that speaks to and seeks to answer these hard questions about the truth of the gospel. And there are answers, sometimes more than one, which are coherent and thoughtful and consistent with scientific findings and persuasive to many thinking men and women who are also people of faith. The books of Christian apologists are well worth reading. Books by people like C.S. Lewis, N.T. Wright, Timothy Keller, Ravi Zacharias, and Josh McDowell all come to mind. The Church of the Cross is committed to addressing the skeptic and addressing him or her honestly, but not here and not now. This sort of doubt is not our subject this afternoon. Then there is a false doubt, by which I mean it masquerades as doubt, which is really indifference. This doubter says in his heart, I don't really care if the gospel is true or not, because it doesn't concern me. You may be surprised to know that there are such people, but they are numerous. They may be your roommate or cousin or employer. They have neither the time nor the interest to figure out where they stand in relation to the gospel. Paul describes them in Romans chapter 1. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator that is, mainly themselves. Indifference is the real opposite of faith. Skepticism and spiritual conviction as doubts are responsive to the gospel. Indifference, masquerading as doubt, becomes the cover for all the iniquities that have made the last century the bloodiest and most destructive in the history of our species. So finally, we come to the doubt we will try to deal with, the doubt that animates the tormented father in our gospel, the doubt that may animate most of us, mistrust. With him we cry, I want the gospel to be true, but I fear it isn't. Now beneath the varieties of doubt, 
are strong feelings that cause them, like perplexity, which animates the skeptic who says, this doesn't make sense to me, whether he speaks empirically, this doesn't accord with the observed regularities of the natural world, or morally, how can God allow the genocide of six million Jews? Another cause of doubt is fear. What if I am mistaken in my faith? As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Another cause of doubt is pride. I was once meditating on the vast unknowable complexity of the universe. To my mind arose the question, how can there be just one behind all this vast complexity and variety? One person, one authority, one God. You might say I was suffering a crisis of theism, the belief in a personal God. How can this be, I thought. And from the depths of my being, prompted by the Holy Spirit, came the most honest of answers. Because if so, you're not the one. My doubts stood exposed as pride. Like Satan in Milton's Paradise Lost, I wanted to rule in hell rather than serve in heaven. And for a moment, I was tempted. But deeper than perplexity or fear or pride is mistrust. I want the gospel to be true, but I fear it isn't. I want to believe that God is real and loving and knows me, but I can't see him. And I often, like the psalmist in Psalm 13, don't feel he's there. Does he really care about me? Does he have my best interests at heart? Does he keep the promises made to his people in the scriptures? Mistrust is basic. It was mistrust of God that got us into trouble in the beginning in the garden. When we listened to and acted upon the suggestion, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of the fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So mistrust led to disobedience, and we became cheated sinners, knowing good and evil by losing the one and embracing the other. So every day in the walk of faith, you and I must decide, do I still trust God? Do I accept his limits? Do I heed his warnings? Do I claim his promises? Even in adversity, especially in adversity. The Israelites reached the edge of Canaan, the very border of Canaan in Numbers chapter 13. And Moses sent spies out to check out the land and its people, the land that God had repeatedly promised to them. All the spies but Caleb and Joshua agreed that although the land was rich and fertile, the cities were too well fortified, the people too strong, and the land itself dangerous. This evil report of nearly all the spies 
Israel believed. And they, out of fear, mistrusted God, mistrusted Moses, and threw away their opportunity to enter the land themselves in their lifetimes. The spies whose false testimony merited death died at once. The rest were doomed to die in the wilderness. Only their children were able to enter the promised land. And when they later repented and tried to fight their way into Canaan by their own strength, they were soundly defeated. In the letter of James, we are reminded that adversity tests our faith and strengthens it. If we lack wisdom about what God could possibly be up to in our world or in our personal lives, we can ask for it and God will supply it. But we must ask in faith, not doubting. The person who prays from a heart that says, I want the gospel to be true, but I fear it is not, is double-minded and unstable. When we hold two contrary convictions, the gospel is true and the gospel may not be true simultaneously, God cannot respond to either one of them. So how do we deal with doubt? The sort of doubt based on mistrust. Let's look again at our gospel reading. First notice that the scribes are described as present and they argue with the disciples left behind when Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on the mountain. The scribes, scholars of the law, members of the religious establishment, are the skeptics who doubt that this ragtag bunch, apprenticed to this irregular and untrained rabbi, have any authority or power to effect an exorcism. But in fact, the disciples do and have. In Mark chapter 6, we read that Jesus gave them authority over unclean spirits and that they cast out many demons. So why do they fail here? Why does Jesus, when he returns, call them a faithless generation? Why does he say this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer? Presumably because the disciples, in Jesus' absence, have come to think that the power given to them is now theirs and have forgotten that it belongs to God alone and is activated only by faithful prayer. They fail not because they doubt, but because they disobey. The object of their faith has subtly shifted to themselves with the extra adrenaline supplied by the presence of the scribes whom they would dearly love to show up. This deepens the crisis for the father who realizes that the evil spirit is trying to destroy his son and that without a deliverance, his son will soon die. Is there any stronger or more desperate love than that of a parent for an endangered child? But knowing that Jesus' disciples have failed makes the father doubt that Jesus can succeed. And so he says, but if you can do anything, at once Jesus confronts his doubt. If you can, all things are possible for him who believes. Now a terrible burden shifts back to the Father. Jesus seems to be saying that he is responsible for rescuing his son through his own faith. His response is the key 
for us in dealing with doubt. Confess it. I believe. Help my unbelief. And Jesus did. And the Father found out that what he feared was not true, that Jesus could rescue his Son, was in fact true, completely true, gloriously true. He asked for help with his unbelief, and he got it in the demonstration of God's power. And so will you and I, if we stop denying our doubts and instead expose them before God, whatever their nature and whatever their source, whether the honest objection of the skeptic, but here I think we must be willing to search out and read the responses of Christian apologists, or the hesitation of the spiritually convicted who needs to face why he or she fears that the gospel is true, or the indifference that masks as doubt, refusing to decide for or against Christ, or simple mistrust. But in fact, nothing is simple about mistrust. Is it based on fear, or pride, or life experience, or all of the above? Confess your doubts. Ask for wisdom with a whole heart. And wait to see what Jesus will do in your life and in your situation. Then you will be able to say with the psalmist in Psalm 13, I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Amen.